Welcome to Creative Welly, episode 6. My name is DK. You're very welcome here. Creative Welly is brought to you in association with John O. Tucker over at Empire Films, the producer of this amazing video podcast, and also hosted by X Equals. Thank you, Alex Matthews. In episode 6, we speak to Hartina Mogasanu, who is an astrobiologist and space science communicator here in Wellington, although originally from Romania, and also Gareth Parry, a partner at PwC New Zealand, who has been creating spaces for people to work together as part of his role there. We get into so many different things, and this is a perfect illustration of what happens when you bring two madly curious people together and just allow them to have those courageous conversations. These are bold humans doing good things. Enjoy. This is the moon and this is Mars. So just so you know, I just take them off so I don't bang them and make noise. Is it the moon? Yeah, LRO, 3D printed in our kitchen. Can I pick it up? Yeah, yeah, of course you can. This is 3D printed. Yeah. Reach for the stars. So this is Mars? Yeah, this is Mars. So I've got a 3D printed moon bracelet. Yeah. What's this point here? That is Mount Olympus. It's the biggest volcano in the solar system. Whoosh! Such a space now. It's awesome. I was like, and this is Valles Marineris. It's the biggest canyon in the solar system. Is it really that steep on the sides? Yeah, actually, um, what Sam had to do, my partner, he had to print it up so that um, you can see a little bit. So it's about 50 times exaggerated. Yeah. It's not actually steep at all. It's like really mild. So you don't even know you're on a... Huh. So it's compressed, so yeah. it elevates yeah, much but higher. Like, but for equally. people to be able to see anything, to see, yeah. like, dudes, this is how Mars looks like. Of course. Um, and that trench, you did mention it, sorry. Yeah, that's Valles Marineris. is the biggest canyon in the solar system. It's the size, I think, I, I'm not mistaken, but I think it's the size of the United States. Like wow. that's. I think so. I'm not sure, but that's what I remember. I, I'm not going to argue. <laughs> Me neither. So. And um, here, see this yes. point here, this is where Perseverance is going to land. Oh, nice. Oh, the flat bit. Yeah. That makes sense. Land on the flat bit. Yeah, I was thinking the flat bit here on the moon. So there's a big flat bit here yeah. on the moon. That's tranquility, um, the Sea of Tranquility, sea where of tranquility. Apollo landed. Hey. Yeah. So the rabbit's dummy. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, of course, is going to lead to a series of questions about the moon landing. Absolutely. Did it happen, Harry? Well, That's I did my, there, my right? master's thesis on that. <laughs> Whether it did or didn't happen. <laughs> Whether it did or yeah. <laughs> I did. That's what was did. your conclusion? No, hang on, we'll get into oh, this. Come on. <laughs> oh, we're into it now. I feel like, yeah. No, we're into it. Oh. We're into it. Did it happen? Wait, what? Did the moon land in hand? Yeah. I think that was the question. Yeah, that's the question. I was like, of course. Like, I used to be nice and polite and say to people, <laughs> you know, how, yeah, it happened, and here is the evidence, and the older I got, yeah. the grumpier I got. And now I say I don't have time for this. <laughs> so is this question for real? Definitely well, not made in a Hollywood basement then. Definitely. By Kubrick. By Kubrick, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he does good movies. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. But, yeah, okay. Well, didn't, uh, what's his name, punch someone because he kept on getting asked? Uh, it was amazing. Coughlin. No, no, no um, Neil, uh, no, um, yeah. Buzz Aldrin. Buzz, Buzz, Buzz Aldrin. Aldrin. I saw that, actually. I saw the video on that one. The punching? Oh, God, yeah. He just got tired of this guy. Saying, yeah. You know, you're false and you made this up. And he's like, but he's old. He was old. He's old now anyway, still. But he was old when that happened, right? He was, yeah, he was. And um, this guy came to him and I like I saw the video. It's like so cool to watch it. Watch it on online, on YouTube. And he just lost it. Wow. <laughs> I just fell for it. I was like, yes. How many years have he had that? Stupid people like us going, did you? Yeah, did, did you? you? Yeah. But I tell you really? something. I worked for the government for 10 years. Okay. 
And I know for a fact that the government does not have enough money mm. to stage, <laughs> to fake, to do anything because they don't have money <laughs> for <point>. pencils. Seriously. <laughs> <Yeah. Serious. laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you have to make all, the, all those forms and triplicate and requests and things for like pencils. Can I go? I mean, like, you know, you can't go to conferences or anything because yeah. there's no funding and, and stationery is like so scarce. Or, well, Harry, they're saving the funding for faking a moon. <laughs> <laughs> well, now the Mars landed or Venus landed. Venus landed. No, well, I, I don't think that's going to happen because if you land on Venus, you get like splat. Like, there's two Pretty. spacecraft that, um, no, its atmosphere is 90 times um, the, the, dense. Then the, then, thank you. It's okay. Then the atmosphere on Earth. Wow. So that means you're crushed, essentially. Yeah. So two spacecraft went to Venus, two Russian spacecraft, and one lasted. 157 minutes or so, like, don't quote me on this, and the other one, 60-something minutes before they got uh, splat. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> i got so many questions. Well, so, <laughs> the, big, the big one, the big question I've got Go right, is where did this rumour about being made in a Hollywood basement come from? So did you come across that while you were kind of unpacking? I don't know, and that's a very good question, and yeah. I reckon I grew up in a communist country. Mm. Romania was a communist country. Mm. And the one thing we were, like, really good at in, in, a, in any communist country was lying and deceiving because mm. that was the strength of being a communist country. Mm. Whereas in the other side of the world, everybody was peer-reviewing everybody. Mm. And if you had a research, everybody was going for the funding. So you couldn't hide it. Whereas in, in the communist countries, you had to be really well-placed and you couldn't do certain jobs unless you were in the military. And if you were in the military, you had to listen to everybody. So, so I, this, and this is just my personal opinion, I reckon it's, it's a um, rumor made by some agencies. That's what I think. Okay. Yeah, but this is just me. That's why everybody says they never landed on the moon. International agencies or American agencies? Not American agencies, I think. <laughs> the other side agencies. The other side agencies. To try and discredit the achievement. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's what I think. That would make sense. My personal opinion. It does. Yeah. Yeah. So the state of the space travel at the moment, kind of exciting, right? Because yes. I was just watching some lady on an interview who was doing the SpaceX, no, which is uh, Richard Branson's one. Um, Virgin Galactic. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> Very good. She was the first lady to go up in a, apart from the, the astronauts that went with her or the pilots that went with her, she's like in the crew and she's designing the crew experience. Oh, cool. And so she got to untether, float around, check things out. Up there. I know, look at you. Going, <laughs> I want that. So we've got commercial agents trying to get into space and showing off and selling seats. And then you've still got NASA and other people in other countries as well. Plus, in New Zealand, we got rockets mm. setting off from our yes. climb down here mm. as well. So are you feeling kind of cool at the moment in terms of the, the profession you've chosen? I feel avenged. <laughs> 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 when I came here, and even um, many, many years ago back in Romania, everybody was like, she's nuts. Why do you like space? They were like, you get over it. Astronomy, ew, get a proper job. So that was wow. my life all the time. And I did get a proper job. And it was sad because I didn't feel like I was doing my job and my duty, but I wasn't happy 
Whereas during space, I wake up excited every morning and I'm like, yay, what are we going to do today? It's like, like being in a toy sh shop. <laughs> that's infinite. It's a, it, that's a very, very good, very good uh, description. So, yeah. I was quite surprised, though, that we are now in New Zealand launching rockets. Mm. Um, but it's not surprising thinking about where we are because it's a good place to launch rockets, apparently. Well, A, Peter Beck is New Zealander, mm -hmm. and I believe in leaders. I don't think anything in this world happens without people leading it and driving it, and mm -hmm. you have to drag everybody else with you. And he's one of those people who's dragging everybody behind, right? So, like, I'm going to do this rocket thing, and he just goes and does it. Yeah. And every everybody who's done anything, Robert Zubrin, he's the president of the Mars Society, he's the same, like, he's dragging everybody, we're just going to go to Mars. Um, mm. Elon Musk, same. He's like, mm -hmm. bye, everybody, I'm going to Mars. If you want to yeah. join me, fine. So, he's a leader, Peter Beck is a leader, and he just wanted to launch rockets, and he, he does. I mean, look at, he's done his dream mm. he's realized his dream it's like such an inspiration for kids mm. and he just so happens to be a new zealander mm. we happen to be in a good position to launch rockets don't ask me how i'm, I'm like i'm sure i'm not 100 percent going to explain this properly but so people out there know how this happens so here is the perfect combination of uh and plus um he he really went and and got support from everywhere to to make this happen so mm. why not and there's a, a, a NASA version, sorry, there's a version of NASA here, isn't there, uh, in New Zealand? There's like the... Well, NASA... Or some kind of... It's the Ministry space. of Space. The Ministry of Space. Right, it's like you have Ministry of Agriculture, cool. Ministry of Industry, Ministry of, I don't know, what else, Education. Yes. And NASA is the Ministry of Space. That's what NASA is. A lot of people kind of like get confused about that because they... Mm. They're like, oh, NASA, it's everything. A lot of people want NASA to be like the hero and save everybody and go to Mars. But it's a bureaucracy there mm -hmm. <laughs> behind those desks. Like um, I had the chance to go to NASA Ames and I went there for an internship. It, it was fantastic. But everything was like frozen in the 1960s. You know, they had okay. 1960s furniture and and offices, and it's, it was just beautiful. All those 1960s cars around there, um, really big trees that probably were planted in 1960s and 1950s <laughs> when when they started. So NASA is a ministry. It's, it's just like any other ministry. We have within MB mm. in New Zealand, we have the New Zealand Space Agency. So that's Yeah, exciting. that's kind of cool. Yeah, mm -hmm. it is. I think so. But we have one here. Yes. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Like, when I saw interned at NASA, I was like, oh, my goodness, isn't that what everyone always wanted to do ever in their life? Yes. Like, <laughs> but then you arrive there, and it feels like you're sort of in Cuba because it's 1950, <laughs> 1960. That was awesome. So, so it, w it was an awesome experience. It yeah. was everything you hoped it would be. It was like pinching myself every day, and I was like... I can't believe I've, I had my name written on the door and it was my name there so I'm like this is my name <laughs> and you have cubicles like everybody else does but it's that furniture that you know white boards just like mm. everywhere else but just the furniture you know all those chairs from you, you were like space odyssey mm. you know Kubrick <laughs> what mm. we were talking about and they do cutting edge research mm. but the way they do it 
is they have a really good system, and they've done. The U.S. has done this with many uh, many things, including telecommunications. So that's an example. They come up with a proposal for a research, and then everybody pitches in. So they get contractors. So like here in New Zealand, everybody who works for the government is a public servant. So maybe in New Zealand government, we have 80%, maybe 90% now people who are public servants. And like 10, 20% of everybody else is a contractor, right? And everybody's like, whoa, you're a contractor. You're really good because, you know, contractors get paid a lot of money. And the U.S. is the other way around. They have 10% public servants at NASA or around that, Mm. you know. And then everybody else is a contractor. So then when you do have that, there is competition. So people compete. They submit ideas. They eat each other up. They're like, you don't do this good. You don't do this good. So they come up with better ideas and better. And I think this is the good, the good way, the way to do it, okay. to have more people going collaborating yeah, yeah. and going for it. Because then if you get something wrong, someone else is there to peer review and say, no, 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 this is no good science. So what were you working on when you were there? I worked on a um, project in planetary protection. So when I left there, I was working for the Ministry for Primary Industries, and I was uh, uh, working for biosecurity. So I was okay. doing risk analysis and um, kind of like that that kind of uh, work. And... Uh, when I got there, I worked in planetary protection, which is biosecurity in space. So looking at how to not contaminate Mars. And the project I worked mm. on actually didn't make it. was one of the rovers proposed to go to Mars. Mm. Perseverance, that's now going mm. to Mars, uh, made time, it. Yeah. But we were looking at how to sterilize the spacecraft so then when it gets to Mars, it doesn't contaminate Mars. And the reasons were purely not commercial, but like we want to know that when we detect life on Mars, if we do that, then it's Mars life and not, mm, not Earth us. life that we just yeah. carried with us. Drop some tardigrades on the moon or something, or something example, like that. Or yeah, a... yeah. But you wouldn't believe it. Like spores of microorganisms from Earth are yes. so hardy that they can actually travel on a spacecraft and then go on another planet and then um, exist there. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I never <laughs> thought about that. Because, okay, I thought literally when you, was, when you started that was about biosecurity, planetary biosecurity is like when yeah. asteroids, the other way, when asteroids hit. Well, see, that's planetary defense. Okay. Different department. Different department. Uh, But it's a really good department, that as well. So you have all this network of satellites that are keeping an eye on asteroids. But then what I love about that is that you have citizen science. So anybody anybody can go online and search for an asteroid that comes to Earth. And then have it named after you? You've got an asteroid named after you. Is, <laughs> no, it, is it an asteroid so or a comet? Or um, a moon it's an or asteroid, a, yeah. And what's the difference? <laughs> a comet is like really big and comes from outer space. So it's like from um, outside of the solar system, yeah. whereas an asteroid is like right here. It's in within between, our solar system. Yeah, within our solar system, between Mars and Jupiter. Yeah. And how do you get... Uh, tell us about the asteroid named after you. What, that's awesome. I think it's awesome. Um, I got one because I have been a science communicator for my entire life, and I just really get excited about space. And mm-hmm. um, I thought I was going to faint when I found out because I didn't realize. I thought it was a joke. And I just couldn't... Yeah. So so it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a very good story. Um, but I think 
I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm, try, I'm trying to to do a lot of um, outreach and, and um, get people excited about space. And I think for me, I, I have to do it. It's just it, it comes from here, and I get so excited about space. Mm. And it doesn't matter. Like when I was a kid, everybody was saying, "Oh, she'll be all right. She'll be over it." Scrubbed. I never got over it. So someone thought that maybe as an incentive, <laughs> they can they can name one after um, my services in um, science communication that I've been undertaking here. That's kind of cool. Cut observatory. I think he's very cool. <laughs> I'm like, whoa, what is what does that even mean? What am I, you know, like I, I want to leave yeah, myself we, and like, can we track your asteroid online somewhere? I have got a poster at home, like in my <laughs> uh, wardrobe. Um, according, you know, Marie Kondo, who does mm-hmm. all the cleaning and wardrobe and sure. makes you be like really tidy and stuff. And she oh. said that the best place <laughs> to put your achievements and in your it's cupboard. in your wardrobe because okay. you open it and close oh, it every day, cool. so you like see it there right, or anything okay. that you wanna that you celebrate. wanna put, yeah, yeah and okay. celebrate. And and so I have it there. <laughs> so you open your and there, I'm like, whoa! And that's where, like a map of where it is, or something. Yes, it's a map of where it is, and and it's kind of like really tiny, and um, it's there, it's out there. So I'm like tracking it's it sometimes. There. Do you know what it looks like? How close can you get to looking at the detail? Not too close. Not too close. I haven't had the chance to look at it close. It's in my to-do list to have like a weekend just trace this asteroid and look mm. at it. And I'm like, it, it's almost like it's like out there. And I'm like, I can't believe this is there. Yeah. Um, it was really interesting because well. before I found out about it, um, I had this conversation with my daughter about dying and mm. what are we going to do when we die mm. and how are we... What are we leaving behind? Mm. So I think for me, it's like a reminder of me being vigilant out there and making sure that whatever I'm leaving behind is like really meaningful. Mm. So it's just like a, mm. it's, it's a lovely, it's like yeah. there. It's looking me into the eye mm. and it's like, have you done the right thing today? But I mean, I don't feel any pressure or anything, but that's, it's mm. always there at the back of my mind. And it's always, I feel really humbled actually mm. because of that. And yeah, small. It's a great and, story. Yeah. So, and it also bigger. begs a really good question, DK, mm-hmm. which is if your life's work so far was encapsulated in an asteroid equivalent, right? what would it be for you? Man, he asked the best questions. <laughs> An asteroid equivalent. What's your asteroid? What are we naming oh, after you? I, I, I like the idea of impermanence imper- rather than mm. permanence. So when you say leaving behind, I, I, no, I kind of don't have any deep-seated faith and stuff. What's we gone, we're gone. So the impermanence is a good thing because mm. you've just got to make your time more precious and leave the world a little bit better than you found it. Mm. So that's the legacy I would like to see is just that it's that little uptick of mm. growth, betterment, whatever it is. Mm. Uh, but don't need to remember me. <laughs> They'll be better people. Oh, but you know what I mean? It's just like, you know, we're, we're a beautiful accident, all of us. And it's lovely uh, in terms of what you wrote, Stardust, right? It's, kind mm. of, it's a wonderful accident and it's a time um, time in the universe that we can just kind of blossom and be. So we need to kind of add a little value if we can. Mm. What about you? What would your asteroid be? You? That. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with something. Um, 
I'm going to go with a song. I'd just love to, oh. someone to go, do you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pop Gareth into a song. I just think that would be so nice. Encapsulate the song. Song. song about you. Like, yeah. That would be nice, actually. Be pretty nice. That is lovely to think. Yeah. If you're out there and you're watching... <laughs> right now, <laughs> but this brings up a good point. One of Gareth's uh, many talents is uh, your artistic doodles and your permanence in that regard in terms mm. of leaving, leaving some kind of legacy aside. Mm. Uh, have you seen his doodles and his infographic work? No, but I'd love to. Well, um, I like it because of the story mm. of how you not came across it, but certainly developed your art through it. Mm. And I think this would be a great for if you don't mind, because it is slightly mm. personal as well. So I, you mm. know. Where do you want me to start? I can go back to age four. No. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, you can for laughs, because it might be a great story at age four, life. And that, this that, is what that, happened. You've got a specific story in mind, and I can't remember it. So I'm going to start with the age four, and then I'm going to do it I think it was more to do seconds. with uh, the infographic work that you developed over a certain amount of time, uh, because that, you devoted your time to it mm. uh, for specific reasons. So um, you're still angling at something I'm not picking up, so I'm okay. going to go with that. When I'm four, yes. I'm living in a house in Ahuriri, Napier, and it's the house that Dad built. And that was super inspiring to me, you know, four-year-old kids often look up to their parents mm. um, as an inspiration. And so I, I knew from age four I was going to be an architect. I, I was drawing house plans as a four-year-old, which is quite an unusual thing, I think, for four-year-olds to be spending their time drawing. Um, I suppose that goes to being an unusual person. <laughs> um, but I think drawing's been a, a part of my life ever since then. Yeah. So all the way through school, it was something I really enjoyed doing. Um, when I started working... Not my first job at Kmart in Palmerston North, but after that, I joined a learning design organisation where what we would do is mm. draw to help make sense of a complex process or a system. Mm. And, and it was kind of unusual at the time. Like, I started in the workforce last millennium. So, you know, there was still a lot of typewriters around and people smoking at their desk and that kind of thing. The world I remember changed the good old days. I remember, the good yeah, old that. Days. <laughs> it was good. Kind of like NASA, you know, back in the, back in the 50s, 60s. Um, so kind of picking up a pen and drawing to make sense of a conversation. I've been fortunate enough, it's been part of my working life since mm. I started work. Um, and then I think when you do that, day in, day out, over however long I've been working for now, which is a wee while, um, you, you know, it becomes second nature. It's sort of part of your modus operandi. It's how I make sense of things. Mm. Um, but you got involved with uh, TEDx Wellington back in 2016. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it was 2016. Yeah. I just had to pick that from my brain. And that was a delightful it was collaboration so cool. it was so to get cool. you involved in using your infographics. Yeah. So what did so, you do? So we uh, live-scribed the event awesome. on three triptychs, which we then produced limited edition copies of in the breaks so people could come out of a session, grab their muffin, have a chat to someone and then wow. pick up their limited edition live scribe of the last four or five speakers. And mm. uh, that was a real delight, eh? It was really, really It was cool. fun, wasn't it? Really. But it was also something, it was before the live scribing had really hit mm. the social consciousness. You've got a lot of confidence now and you do see some live scribing. Mm. Not to, you know, kind of denigrate what that that's become mm. a, a trend. It's a mm. good trend, I think. Mm. But before then, it, it wasn't really that well known. And per, and on top of that, just to finish, is is like, do you produce these limited edition ones? Mm. 
that she was quite nice, so we revealed that this is special, mm. it's of a time. Mm. That was great. A, a really fond moment. I think that um, using visual literacy is something that's mm. been generally underrated in a lot of the kind of work communities I've been involved in. Um, so we tend to kind of favour the numerical or the rational or the reasoned or the verbal communication, but not so much the spatial or emotional or mm. visual. Um, and learning to try and use, understand those different literacies and then bring them into problem solving or thinking about what you're doing, where you're going, or communicating. I mean, there'd be parts of your kind of communication mm. repertoire too. You'd be drawing on those different literacies to help people. And very visual. With. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So I'm biased. <laughs> yeah. It is, and, and that's where I came across your work through our mutual friend Joe, right? And yes. uh, then I was sent your blog. Mm, that was a cool project. Okay, cool. I'm with you now. There we go. And you, I was, I was going to pick it up eventually. Yeah, no, no, it no. Would take me three or four goes. But it was great because going through there was just so delightful. Yeah. Seeing all that was really where you turned your atten more attention to yeah. your craft, I suppose. Well, you know the movie Julie and Julia. Yes, I've heard of it, but I can't remember it. So Julie or Julia kind of cooks their way through Julie or Julia's cookbook. I can't remember which one is which, but um, it's quite it's a neat movie. It's good, mm. good kind of fun, uh, heartwarming, you know, pulls at the heartstrings. Uh, but I remember going to bed that night and not being able to sleep because we were just kind of fizzing with ideas for a similar project. What's something that we could do each week mm. over the course of a year just to kind of try and stretch the creative limbs a little bit yeah. um, so this idea of creating 52 infographics over 52 weeks wow. kind of came out and it was at first <laughs> delightful because you know uh, thinking about what's something that I'm curious about that I'd like to know a little bit more about, mm. doing the research to find out a bit more about it and then enjoying the process of how could I communicate this visually, that was really fun, about week 30. 32, you know, you're starting to get a little bit, gosh, you know, another 30 hours of work this week on top of the full-time job. But a really good way to um, kind of just build a little bit more of a creative muscle in that domain. And, um, you know, lots of people seem to enjoy it, so it's good fun. It was, man. Yeah. And uh, now you're doing grown-up stuff with it. Yeah, I get to do it every day and, uh, and, and with groups of people live. So. I want to know about the end. How did you manage to finalize it because a lot of people start on projects and mm -hmm. it's like really easy to start something and have an idea but very few people finish mm. how did you do that what's what's your secret my secret is um, reasonably simple it's um i set the measure at the start 52 in 52 weeks <laughs> so i made sure i hit 52 <laughs> in 52 weeks and then i'm gonna do another one for a whole lot longer yeah. so you knew there was a cutoff <laughs> yeah and probably imogen was like mm -hmm. okay we've had enough of that now yeah. so let's move on <laughs> next <laughs> But I think, you know, giving yourself a target like that um, and one that you could complete and then feeling the... One thing I really wanted to do with it is share it openly with people. So rather than mm -hmm. just keeping it to myself, was to put that thing out there into the world as well and, and see how people reacted to it and responded to it. Mm -hmm. And so then you feel a sense of accountability to complete the work. Um, Definitely. So I think that, that helped. I think that's where the connection of you pair come in because of the communication mm. aspect. You've already highlighted mm. different levels and layers of how people are more comfortable. Like years ago, about 10 years ago now, I stopped reading books. Mm. And it was a, a conscious decision because I realized that when I read books, I don't take information in that way that well. Huh. I can read books. 
I'm fine reading books. I enjoy reading books. Mm. It's not that I can't read. It's just that I know I never retain anything that way. Mm. So if someone says about an author or a book that I need to read, I'll Google them or jump on YouTube and find a presentation by them, and then I get the essence of their book, right? And then I can talk to people about this person and stuff like that. That's my cheat sheet right? Mm -hmm. going on right there. So, And the same with your infograph. I love them because mm. they're at that level. And the same with science communication, mm. which has become such a big thing uh, that people are now aware of that scientists have historically not been the best people to talk about their work mm. because they're of that level and they're still talking in there. But it's really important that a lot of other people know about their work. So it's a new literacy, right? And mm. you're part of SCANS that does yes. that? Yeah. Science. Mm. Yeah. I just became a vice president. Because hey, um, our president is going on maternity leave. So I put my hand hey. up. I said, I'm happy to cover and support. And mm. I think it's very exciting. Mm. It's a growing area, right? Yeah. Uh, but only in the last probably 10, 20 years yeah. that it has been such a, a specific science communication. Yes, and like I was going to say, when I grew up, astronomy was something silly and weird. Mm. And like science communication was like, what? Mm. <laughs> what do you do with science? Yeah. Why do you have to communicate science? But I think it's, it's with like with any communication, um, there isn't a manual of communication, and especially in the manual of the risk communication, which I did for many years, there is this really neat um, timeline where First, they said that if they wanted to communicate something to people, like, you know, there's a disease coming or anything like that, they, in the 1940s, 50s, they would just say, this is happening mm. and you have to do mm. this, right? And you look at that timeline and as the mm. time goes by, now people want to be involved in the decision-making mm. process and okay. they want to know why, but mm. they want to get engaged and they want to do citizen science and mm. they want to help. Yeah. I, and I think that's the fantastic thing. Like, how many times there is there a science communication project where you can engage mm. people? So everything I do nowadays, I'm trying to find projects where I can get as many people as possible involved mm. in that measurement or mm. that, you know, so it's, it changed so much. Mm. So I think... Now we want to, because everybody reads the, you know, like you want to read the the summary. You don't want to read the book. I don't want. I don't. Sure. I don't. I'm like with you on that one. I'm totally with you, right? Because um, it's faster, but you already have your ideas, which mm, is called bias. Yeah. yeah. But when you do things, when you count the number of stars. Yourself. In a constellation, yourself yeah. and see. Ah, I can only see three, so it means there is light pollution on my street. Gotcha. Right. It's like, I've done something, I've contributed. So I think that's the key for me in this communication is like getting people engaged and, and to, for them to do something as well. That's I can imagine that echoes with yeah. your work, right? Well, it's just going to say all three of us have that mm. actually as our jobs. Yeah. So, again, 20, 30 years ago, the jobs that we have now didn't exist. Mm. They weren't jobs. Mm. We effectively make our living out of being able to help people communicate with each other or being able to communicate complex concepts. That, um, that concept of just telling people like we used to in the 40s and 50s, it's evolved into an interesting continuum, which I've seen a few variants of. But, um, we use it all the time in our work, helping Crown agencies in particular to work with communities. So that continuum at one end has just tell people about it and inform them. Then it has consult. Mm. You might actually listen mm. to what they say, maybe. And then it has co-design or collaborate. So you actually do some stuff together. Then it has partner, 
we are sharing the risks and the costs and the work and the decisions, and then it has devolving power or recognising the mana inherent in that community. Yep. Um, I think the way people want to participate in communication rather than just receive communication now, yeah, it's, it's fascinating to be a part of, eh? Yeah. There's a, there's a trust thing in it as well. That's exactly what I wanted to say. Yeah. And it's like, it's, I think, like, from what I've studied, and I'm really passionate about this science communication process and how can you be effective. Mm. But this thing with the trust is, like, so important because people get secondhand information. Mm. I don't have time to read the oh, book, good. but I'm going to ask DK, mm. what do you think about the book? And I trust him. Mm. Yeah. So then he gives me a, a description, and then I'm like, okay, cool, because I trust this person. I'm going to do what he says, or Indeed. I want his opinion. Mm. And we all, it looks like, I mean, maybe not, because now we, if, we are, if we are aware of something, then we can change the way we behave. But if mm. we're not, mm. that's what we do. That's why we trust some doctors, and we get another doctor to oh, give another really. opinion. But it's not just that. Um, so it's interesting, eh? We're trusting the information that we're then making a choice or a decision about. But equally, are we trusting the contribution of a person to a decision? So um, we see this all the time. If we're designing a new product or a service or a system or a space, um, communities necessarily need to be involved in the design of the product mm. or service or system or space. But in order to trust their contribution, that's quite a, a vulnerable position for the person who has perceived ownership of the product or system or service or space to kind of occupy. Mm. So it's slightly different to trusting information. It's trusting contribution. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That, that dynamic's fascinating. So it's coming back to the person, right? Yeah. 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 And it also highlights the other side of trust, which is vulnerability. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. You know, you have to now put yourself mm -hmm. to not be the cleverest person in the room and have the answers, mm -hmm. but maybe have some question that provokes and reveals that you don't have mm. the insights because you haven't lived their experiences or whatever. Mm -hmm. I'm reminded when you were doing your steps mm. Mm. of something uh, that I became aware of in another lifetime when I was a youth worker back in 90... It's mm. happened a new door for yeah, conversation. Hello. In the 90s, uh, late 90s... How old are you? I am 45. I know. I am so old. Um, thank you for that. I don't mind revealing. Um, but seriously, one of my first roles was uh, working with young people in local authorities or the public sector. And um, very quickly, I became versed with my other peers in the youth workspace around something called the Ladder of Participation, mm. which is a Roger Hart <laughs> flashback. This guy put together literally a ladder. You can see a ladder. And on the steps of the ladder, he mm. wrote these words. And the bottom rung is, you know, tokenism, mm. you know, all yep. these other things. Yep. that. And it was all to do with how do you empower young people and give them what we would say now, agency. Back then, it was participation. Mm -hmm. And you move up this ladder of participation where you get to the top rung, mm -hmm. which is youth-led, you support, right? Rather than what is usually happening is when you go in, like you say, the cons consultation is low down. Mm -hmm. But so many big companies and organizations just want to consult. And we all already know they've made a decision. They're just checking that it will work or some validation or even if it doesn't, they'll just go, yeah, they said, yeah. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> carry on anyway. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm amazed that, you know, 
20 odd years later, I'm reminded of these steps. Mm. When you just, uh, and you're using mm. similar things. I'm yeah. not saying you're using an old model, it's just your new updated. Everything's but, uh, derivative, isn't it? Yes, surely. It is. But it's wonderful that it's validated as well. Yeah. Uh, but what I didn't understand back in those days was the, the idea of vulnerability as a, a, a space of strength. If, mm. you, if you step into mm. a, a space, it has to be positioned, but if you step in a space of vulnerability, most people will identify that as a strength position, whereas mm. you identify it as a vulnerable position, so you're weak. We've got to get away from that. And it's just like being open with your emotions with a loved one and mm. things like that. It's really hard for certain people to do that, males. Um, and so, but it's, it's, a strength, it's a point of strength, right, mm. when you can be open and honest. Because it takes, sorry, it takes mm. a lot of courage to admit that you don't know something. Mm. And then when people come and help you, that's your strength because yeah. they're there yeah. to support you. Mm. Addicts know this well, you know, mm -hmm. the, the steps of addiction and getting over it, mm -hmm. you know, versus identifying can you fix it yourself mainly no. So you need uh -huh. to open yourself up, for be vulnerable right. and ask for help. Right. And then through that, you become empowered through the idea of community. Mm. So it's... It's funny though, like there are a lot of biases that play out in Western society that, that kind of drive our thinking in our language that we're often not aware of. So strength, good, mm. weakness, bad. And Indeed, we, make, yeah. we make it into a binary. Yes. Whereas actually, sometimes weakness is really good. And mm. sometimes strength is really bad. Yeah. And sometimes they're neither. They're just, they are what they are. Mm. Yeah, because you can be too strong. Yeah. And therefore not pliable. Yeah. And open. And actually it can be good that it's weak because we want to, you know, expose it to something and, and make sure that it, you know, does hold even though it's weak in a sense. Yep. So weak and the, the concept of fail fast. So if you yeah. take that out of the context of fail fast, it's fail, which is bad. Mm. But actually in the context where you're trying to invalidate something because you don't want to overinvest in it or it's not going to work, fail fast is good. <laughs> mm. So I, I, I find those... Um, Biases fascinating to, and you probably come across that a lot in your work when you manage uh, those facilitated experiences yeah. for larger groups of people. Yeah, like, totally. All of those human behaviours that are um, the kind of steeped in the, the cultural traditions of the society that a group of people find themselves in. When you start seeing those kind of biases and patterns play out, it can be nice just to try and zoom out from it and gotcha. Yeah kind of call out what's going on so that mm. people can go, oh, yeah, that is happening here. <laughs> mm. And maybe it's not quite right given the context. But you've been involved in some juicy things in the past, but also recently. Mm. Are you allowed to talk about what you've been involved in? Uh, I could probably talk about some of the, um, the criminal justice work over mm. the last few years. I could probably talk about that generally. And mm. um, that's been fascinating. Um, we, we helped out with Hapaitea Te Oranga Tangata, which was the Justice Summit, um, probably two years ago now. Um, I think the things that stood out for me, uh, we brought 700 people together who represented the kind of whole continuum of the justice world, if you like. So mm. in that room, there were crown ministers and gang leaders and people who had experienced oh. harm and people who had caused harm. And police and corrections officers and the media and you know it was a, a fascinating um, NGOs providing services to really really fascinating kind of melting pot cross-section of the justice sector 
And by the end of the second day, um, there were maybe four themes that stood out really strongly to most of the people in the room. So the first of those themes was every time you interact with the criminal justice system, it either recriminalizes you, so it keeps you stuck in that pattern, or it re-victimizes you, keeping you stuck in that pattern. Okay. Um, so that's first and second insight. The third insight is the impact the criminal justice system has had on Māori in New Zealand. Mm. It's horrific, and I won't go into the stats, um, but worth looking into. Um, the fourth insight was more a vision statement. So we, on day two, we kind of split the room up into smaller groups to explore a, a hope or a vision for the justice system um, by 2040. And um, group after group would come back and share their thinking with the whole room. And when 37 of the 40 groups had come back with some variant of last prison turns into penthouse <laughs> apartments, you know, the, all of the groups talked about this month fundamental the change yeah. in the system. Um, I think the reason I can talk about that work is over the last couple of years we've yeah. seen some quite amazing shifts and changes mm. in how we're talking about justice and crime in New Zealand. Um, and understanding the role and the impact that the system has had on perpetuating some of those patterns, and then starting to see the work of um, shifting and changing and dismantling. Um, yeah, that, that's been amazing to be involved in. Well, Tanya, who spoke at TEDx yeah, Wellington, that's right. spoke about that specific experience that's of right. being involved and surrounded by... Uh, she works for an NGO uh, trying to re-look re at the specifically youth justice, I think, and she tells the story about mm -hmm. even people who are in the system, you know, police, uh, sorry, um, prison officers yeah. saying they don't want to be in the system from a perspective of wouldn't it be great if we didn't have this system? Mm. So how do we, yeah, approach it from a different perspective? And I, I think it's inherent in some of um, what parts of the system have been gifted. So there's a, a whakatauki that was gifted to Arapotama Aotearoa, the Department of Corrections. And it's absolutely beautiful. Um, I don't know the te reo, but it says there is but one purpose to our work, the wellness and well-being of people. That underlines something. Yeah, it does. If you think about that, mm. from that's our correctional system's purpose, mm. wellness and well-being of people. It's... Before I got involved in the sector, it's not what my perception of a prison or a sure. justice system yeah. is about. But the more I've realised that people don't volunteer themselves to the criminal justice system, yeah. the life events that lead to... Mm -hmm. One quote from a person that we heard through the preparation for the summit was, crime starts with a hungry child. We do have a problem here with that. We do. We do. In New Zealand, I mean. We do. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Or, or if you spend time with someone in the care of our corrections department, most of the people that you sit down and have a conversation with, if your life had followed the same course, if the same circumstances had occurred in your life, mm. I find it really difficult not to imagine I would find myself in the same position they find themselves in. And when you can begin to connect and empathise with, mm. it changes your understanding of how the system works. Can I ask how do you go about when you get a brief like that? Mm. And I didn't know if the brief was we're going to get 700 people together or you mm. came up with that. Mm. But how do you even then start to manage 
that amount of variety. Mm. The amount of people that can be managed, but the variety mm. and thinking about the journey and the experience through all those different lenses. Mm. And then you need to get something out of it or mm. get them to feel like they're getting something out of it. I uh, like persona work and all that stuff. We can throw all those. But that's something very different. <laughs> You're like, I'm yeah. going to throw the question back at you after <laughs> I've answered it because, of course, you are familiar with this kind mm-hmm. of bringing together people from different backgrounds. Sure. But um, one of the most powerful tools I've learned about in the last few years is framing. Mm. So taking the time to frame the why. So we, the brief for that was 700 people, and the days are coming up in about four weeks or six weeks. wasn't too long. <laughs> Hot potato. So, yeah, and here's the agenda. And our job was cool that we've got an agenda. Let's just unpack the why from the agenda. So what's the purpose of getting this group together? Mm. What change in the world do we want to see as a result of having convened this thing? What output does it need to produce to affect that change? What do we need to do together in order to create those outputs? Who needs to participate? And what, what do we want to take as a given that we don't stray into? And um, mm. that's not something that you can do by yourself. I mean, you can, but you don't get the richness of the mm. different perspectives in the room. Mm. So for that particular piece of work, we um, set ourselves up a small room and then had about 400 people come through the room in the lead-up to the summit, just giving their opinion on each of those questions. And we would iterate our mm. understanding each time someone would contribute something new. And once we had a good, pretty steady state for the why, you could pretty quickly then translate that into how the day would flow and how you'd make sure that you could weave together the different mm. voices and perspectives. Yeah, how, how do you do it, though? I mean, you, you, you bring diverse groups of people together reasonably sure, often. but it's a different brief, a selfish brief. Mm. rather than a client brief. Although sometimes, you know, mm. like someone like a Kiwi Bank will say, we're getting 120 leaders together. Mm. We want to go through this strategy with them because we're launching it. That's all we got. Mm. <laughs> and I go, great. So they're going to be bored and they're going to be, you know, sat down for all this time. Why don't we move? Mm. But you said framing. Mm. I literally kind of preempted what you were going to say. Mm. But instead of framing, I thought you were going to say priming. Mm. Because that's the language that I use around, and I do a lot of when I do master classes and workshops mm. with clients. Priming for me is a is a key thing mm. that I now have picked up. I can't remember where from, but only probably in the last five years, where I realised that people turn up to whatever you do. Mm. People turn up already with their agendas, their yeah. ideas, maybe yeah. half of work already yeah, yeah, yeah. done, even though it's 9 o'clock in the morning, or they're thinking about their kids because something they said this morning made them worry, mm. or their missus, or their fella, or whatever. They're bringing with them something completely you know, different to what you want them to think and bring, mm. right? So you've got to prime them and make them a bit ramdass, if you want to get into that, be here now. Mm. You know, ramdass is a big philosopher dude. He took... Yeah, a bit of drugs, and then he became this uh, guru. Uh, but he came out with this phrase, be here now. And that's the singular thing that we lack as humans. We don't be here now. Right? Or very you know, hard it's to just, do that. Yeah, it is so hard. And that's what he devoted his life to, to help people to wow. be here now. So how do you make people be here now? Well, it's the emotional mm. side that you want to draw them in. Mm. Um, it's also mindfulness, mm. you know, breathing, all these other tips and tricks that I've mm. learned from other people like our colleague Saab and stuff right. like that, where you can see these people use certain tools and you're like, oh, that's, that's a bit Jedi mind tricky. How did you get everybody to just be attentive? 
but he didn't. What he did was ask him to get involved with something like, we're just going to do some light breathing exercises or something, you know, mm. and everybody just becomes calm, becomes present, and then after it, then do the ask. Mm. So I was always doing the other way. I would be like straight into things, you know, mm. and, and never primed people very well. Mm. And then when it comes to, to designing events now, I'm trying to think about, uh, this is an old theatre term, crossing a threshold. Mm. Or, um, which is the idea that in theatre worlds, when you enter a theatre, that's called crossing a threshold, mm. and you always know you're in a theatre because mm. it's the beautiful lights and it's all mm. neat and it's always something like that. That crossing is when is a different world. Mm. They want to invite you into a different world. So it's got to be lit differently, it's got to look differently, it's got to be that. So how do you do that in events as well? Because mm. most conference spaces, you never, you mm. just enter a room. Mm. Um, and most of my time is like turning off lights and mm. try to dim things and make things a different temperature mm. even, you know, not just a, a, a heat temperature, but, a, you know, mm. oh, this is different. And, uh, yeah, try to consider that a mm. lot. Try to move people out of their state. What uh, you've just said now reminded me of one of the myths, probably one of my favorite gods mm. is Janus. Okay. And Janus is the god of time, and he has is Janus Bifrons that has two faces. One looks into the past, and one looks into the future. And he's the god of passages and gateways. Mm. And so, ancient Romans and Greeks they knew this mm. about priming. And one of the things they were doing, they were just putting a gateway. Mm. So every time you would go under that gateway, under the door, mm. it had to be a gateway you would be finding yourself in a different world. Yeah. And he's like, he's January. From, from Janus comes January. Right. New birth, new, new, new yeah, year. Of course, new year. Of course. You're moving into, a, a crossing a threshold from the old to the new. And I think when I came here to New Zealand, one of the things that I found the most fascinating, and I didn't know what I was feeling at the time, I was just like, whoa, this feels good, is when I went to Marae. Mm. I went to a marae and you can't say anything. You can't just bulge in and mm. say stuff. You have to be quiet, wait your turn, do all the rituals, mm. say your um, introduction. So it's like everything is like really, and it just puts you so at ease. Mm. All that ritual, all the mm. presentations, the introductions and everything, it just makes you be, because I think inside we're still who we were like 20,000 years ago and we're like, ah, what am I going to do here? Yeah. We did this course called Thinking on Your Feet. Mm. It's like, what yeah. happens if someone comes and asks you something on uh, um, on TV, you know, with interviews and things? What right. do you tell them? Like if they bully mm. you into, and you say, give me a minute. Mm. Just let me think. Give me one second. Take a breath. And then you have strategies. Mm. So you can say the biggest, the smallest, the, you know, mm. um, or, you know, that that kind of that, mm. that kind of strategies. So when you talk to someone, you don't like just blurt things, but but you actually engage your brain. So mm. take away the fear, mm. that subconscious fear of fight I'm going to be eaten yeah. by the audience. It's so scary, mm. and it is scary, right? When when you are totally. on the stage and like it's the scariest thing ever. So rituals. When I came here, I just thought this feels so good. Mm. So why does it feel? Because I always want to know why. I'm mm. like. It feels good, but why does it feel good? You're a scientist. Right? It's like, you have to say, yeah, exactly, <laughs> to the bone. And, and then I looked across, and military has rituals. Mm. 
and they do them really well. And I think there is something to be said about this, about rituals, I and about agree. and that's priming. That's the priming. So it just yeah, gives your brain yeah, thought about that. a little bit of space to get into a routine, and then disengage the reptilian brain mm. or the mammalian brain and engage your prefrontal cortex. And to you know, do the things that we have to do, but it's like oh, I'm so scared of yep. doing this, of talking. Like even now, I've been doing very many public appearances, like very many. Like I talk to crowds, mm. no problem. Mm-hmm. But before I open my mouth, I'm so scared every time. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I thought there was something wrong with me. And then this thinking on your feet course that I did, they're like, it's okay. Mm. It means you care. Yeah. And it's your, like you say, your old part of your brain. Yeah. And when I'm doing speaker coaching, that's one of the biggest things we get to is like, why do I feel the way I feel? Why am I so nervous? Why do I fear this so much? I know my stuff. I know my stories. And it is about trying to calm yourself or move yourself into an emotional context mm. and trick your brain and um, mm. go, we're not nervous, we're excited. Because it's the same physiological responses. And I try to reshape a story in people's brain about why they're nervous. It's like give them permission, first of all. If historically, 20,000 years ago, there were 200 pairs of eyes on you, you were in trouble. You know, so straight away, we know that. That's just your brain kicking in. So now we need to retell a new story and implant that in your brain, and then do something with your physiological responses, because, yeah, you're sweating too much, you've got no you know, saliva, because you're, yeah, scared, right, and you're <laughs> shaking, and all that stuff. So how do we manage all that? We've got to tell it another difference. So it's, everybody's different, but there is a commonality of response, and, yeah, it does come down to you're scared because you, you care about this as well. But what you've just said is so cool, because I never thought about this before, but you're actually giving people permission to talk. Mm. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Like uh, that, I only figured that out a couple of years ago about my kind of purpose in my big why. Mm. Uh, looking back, Ooh, I mentioned. Yeah, big why. Yeah, the big why. Like, what yeah. is your big why? Uh, I only figured it out a couple of years ago. My purpose was to give people voice. Mm. Because when I started in kind of youth work and, and leisure development and helping people mm. kind of do fun stuff and then. Uh, transitioned to the youth work, then became my own digital kind of thing and then podcasting and doing all the events and business design, whatever thing I got into. It was all about the other and enabling the other mm. rather than me, really. I was just, you know, maybe the amplifier of that. Mm. And the same now, like speaker coaching. Come on, helping people stand and have voice. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's lovely when you see someone up there who you knew five weeks ago straight away saying, I can't do this. Mm. And you're like, you can. It's just that at the moment, you don't know you can. Mm. That's mm. really is. What's your big way? Mm. Helping people be more open and loving so that the choices they make are more equitable. So that's a reasonably complex connection of thoughts, but I've been thinking about them for a while now. Mm. Um, I can't understand how we live in this remarkable planet, yet have such an inequitable distribution of resources Um, and I I think if you were starting society again you probably wouldn't allow the depth and breadth of inequality that we have to exist Mm. Um, and my kind of theory of change towards equitability is that people 
make choices and the choices that we make within this system can either lead us closer towards equity or further away. So that's kind of like, am I choosing something for my own benefit or the benefit of a small, my crowd, or am I making a choice for the benefit of a wider crowd? And I get the choice is a very complex thing. People don't just make a choice. They make a choice within the context of a system Mm. and within their own context. Um, And, you know, we could get into quite a deep and long argument about free will, Mm. um, but we'll just park that Mm. for one moment. I think if you can create the right conditions for people to just open up a bit, and I think that's a bit about priming. So if Mm. you rock into a session and in your head is, you know, what's in my inbox today and what are the tasks I have to get done and I'm worried about that thing, you're in a closed state of mind. If you can help people to relax from that and become more open, Mm. and if you can help people be more empathetic and loving towards both the people that are coming into that space with Mm. and the concepts that are coming into that space, and the people who aren't in that space but are being represented in some way, shape, or form. Mm. I feel like if you can get people to be more open and loving, they're more likely to make choices that lead us towards equity. Mm. Yeah, That's a lovely yeah, deconstruction. I've been thinking about it for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Nailing it. <laughs> yeah. I get you, it. Yeah. What's, your, what's your big why? Yeah, well, I, I should have seen that coming, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think... And I was like, when I asked you, I thought, oh, no, I'll have to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> I want my species to thrive. Mm. So when I look into the future, I really, I really like humankind. I think we're amazing because we're, we, have a, we have an understanding of the universe. We are the universe because mm. we're made of stardust. Mm. So we're all made of the same stuff. Mm. And I say this is the most profound connection we have with each other, that Mm. every single thing on this earth has been once in the heart of a star. Mm -hmm. That's deep. And that's cool. But I delight in what, like, I've seen you do your thing, and I see you elate doing your thing as well. Um, The last time I saw you do your thing was a random thing, because I came to the observatory with a couple of pals who was passing through. They were on their honeymoon. Oh, oh, that's so cute. And Annie was so lovely. She went, and hold on, i got to preface that with what the, the husband of the, the partners, um, the guy was a, or still is, a, what do you call it, a Royal Observatory guy, wasn't he? Ooh, yeah. He's an astronomer. Royal Greenwich Observatory, yeah. 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 In the Royal Greenwich Observatory he was. He's now moved to Ireland, Dublin. Yeah. yeah. Um, so he straight away, the Empire was like, boom. She was like, come on, I'll show you the big telescope <laughs> and that. And we had a little private little look through. Look at that. And you got so excited. And we went through and there was a tour going on. And for some reason, the, the guy who was taking the tour was just sorting something out. So you went in straight tour mode. You were like, hey, welcome everybody, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and we were like straight into it yeah I remember but you were just covering off you were just like doing the baton thing and just handing off but it made everybody kind of excited about what's there and what they were seeing um, but I also like the the space place observatory experience because it's so mm. different mm. to anything else like you go to the cinema it's the closest thing you can get to an mm. observatory but it's different straight away because the way the seats are mm. what you go on and it's and, a captive audience because you have a uh, dome Mm. So imagine this is a dome, yeah. it's like a big dome over everybody. And so you're in a locked room. <laughs> we lock them and in. And you sit on a chair and you look up because we're looking up mm. and the chairs are really comfortable. Mm. And I think everybody has fallen asleep <laughs> once in those chairs. My daughter does it all the time. And, and so you're, 
you're captured there. Mm. So you have to have like really soothing, I don't know, stories or beautiful stuff that is happening. And and you don't you don't make a lot of noise. So that's the difference between TV screen Mm. or cinema or everything. Because on a TV screen, you have you have to have Mm. peripheral vision capture as well. Mm. So it's like, come on, look at me, look at me. You know, you just that's what you do when when you do a movie or an interview or anything Mm. like that. Whereas in the planetarium, it's like everything is dark. Yeah, and you just hear this voice that is coming from the five point one system, <laughs> surround system. It's like, where is this person? I'm like, I'm behind you. Don't look back. <laughs> and you're We're operating not going that all way, the thing. you know. Like, yeah. um, what's his name from the Vikings? Lagnar Rothbroth. Okay. Yeah. You mean the cool. TV show Ragnar the Vikings? Rothbroth. Yeah, he says, "Don't look back. We're not going that way." Okay. It's like, don't look back. We're here. Yeah. We're going into We're space, going into and space. yeah. But I love the, your little tech system as well, your setup, because you can really quite have some totally. fun manipulation of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm going to go over here now, and it's kind of like... Yeah, we're just going to Saturn, it's like my favorite <laughs> yeah. planet. Awesome. I want to go skiing there one day. You can ski Tell us, in tell us a bit more about skiing on Saturn. On Saturn's rings, right. So Saturn's rings are made of ice, mostly, okay. and there are boulders as high as three or four kilometers there. That's why they're so shiny and bright. When you see a Saturn telescope, it just looks gorgeous. And you can see, if you have a good telescope, the Cassini division, which is like mm. a tiny little black line between the two rings. Mm-hmm. But those rings are really, 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 really big. They're 180,000, I think, if I remember correctly, kilometers wide. And sometimes they can be three to four kilometers, from tens of meters, a few tens of meters to a few kilometers, a couple of kilometers wow. wide. So that's how... It's like Fast. someone was saying... If you have a razor blade, you will need a kilometer-wide razor blade. Wow. So that's the proportion wow. between okay, Saturn's yeah. rings. And I'll have to double-check that, but I think it's such a beautiful analogy. Mm. So, 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 oh, my gosh, I'd so want to go and ski on Saturn's rings. Like, <laughs> come on, wouldn't you? Yeah, I, I'm going in. <laughs> I hadn't thought about it before, to be perfectly honest. No, I didn't uh, know yeah, you could. Inspired, so, well, you yeah. could. Well, yeah, apparently. Let's do it. <laughs> Stardust. <laughs> so... <laughs> I read something a few years ago about how I think we exchange 90-something percent of our atoms with the environment around us every seven years or so. Possible. And, and I, I mean, don't quote me on the number. I don't know if it was 90 percent or I'm going to write it years, down and calculate. <laughs> that kind of um, exchanging of our atoms with the world around us and that idea of stardust, that both of those ideas and the idea that if I'm exchanging my atoms with other people around me, it, ma- it starts making me think much more about how interconnected we are at an atomic yeah. level, yeah. at a particular yeah. level. And that's the same as the story of the Golden Fleece ship. Because yeah. if you fix the Golden Fleece ship, if you just replace one of the, you know, uh, whatever is made of, um, wood planks, mm. okay. one at a time, right? So you get end up 2,000 years later that every single wood plank is replaced. Gotcha. Is that still the gold yeah, sure. uh, yeah. sheep or is any? Is it a new one? Am I still is it a new me one? Or are we, we? Yeah, Ooh. but that's that's a very good point. Then for me, okay. it's so easy to do the space work because it's, it, this is the inspiration. So we're all made of stardust. Mm. We're all connected so much. We're so unique. There is no other life. I mean, people say they discover phosphine on Venus and we're looking mm. for aliens. But still, right now, today, we haven't right. yet, right? So we just, right. just let's just be present in the moment. Yeah, be here now. <laughs> be here now, right? Mm-hmm. Be zen. We're the only life we know. There could be others. 
but I think that's what I love about astrobiology because it's it's just like it makes you be responsible and mm. treasure life and see how unique and amazing and beautiful it is. And one of our colleagues in Scotland, Chris Cockle in Scotland, he works with people in prisons mm. and he gets them to do astrobiology because mm. it talks about this big picture. Mm, right. Like, who am I? Mm. Life is a miracle. Life is a miracle. Life is a miracle. Do you know there are only two um, types of program that seem to work and <laughs> correction, right. correctional facilities around the globe for helping reduce you know, offending? Right, it's no. It's called when you get back out. One is about identity. So if you think about that astrobiological view and yep. understanding who you are in the context of other things... Mm. That's pretty cool. You mentioned the A word, aliens. Mm. Real? Uh, do they exist? Are there aliens? <laughs> oh, uh, Come on, you're the I'm not going to say this one. <laughs> oh, <laughs> unofficially. I'm not going to say this in public. <laughs> I've seen things. <laughs> what is oh, the best? What? Ba- what? Oh, what? <laughs> okay, can I ask you, what is the best question you've heard mm. you can ask us mm. to consider life on other planets? Like, what, as a, a scientist and involved in lots of space things, how would you lead us to think about is there life on other planets? That is a very good question. <laughs> I have never thought about that. We usually talk to people and get them to consider that they themselves are made of stardust. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't know. You, you coach me. <laughs> you tell me what. I, I suppose, like, uh, we had a quick chat before saying that we were going to ask you this, so that's why we're giggling. Oh, no, get, got to ask her, is there, is there aliens, right? <laughs> it would be, uh, there's, there's a lot of uh, statements like this. It would be quite arrogant to think that we're the only hmm. living things in the whole of space. So we're not just talking solar system, the whole of space. But then if you've got to go into the discussion how big is space and then you're, you know getting into a whole thing. It's, it's quite big, right? Have you heard? Too big. Uh, too big. Mm. Too big. It's too, too big. big. Let's make it a little bit smaller. Get that lady who cleans up things. Clean up a bit of space. Yeah. Um, Marie Kondo. <laughs> and put the things on the wardrobes mm. on the inside <laughs> to make you delight. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it's just... So, okay, let me ask you another question because I'm going off on one now. <laughs> because I wanted to come back and All say, right. do you think in your lifetime yeah, nice. we will discover sentient life somewhere else I Mm. hope so Mm. in my TED talk in 2013 was about the Drake equation in Mm. Christchurch Yes, and that's what we're like okay is there life out there it's like surely there is life out there Mm. but what the Drake equation does and there is a new iteration now they calculate it with stats and maths and things like that what is the possibility of having intelligent life communicating with us? And the latest paper that I know of says that there is a possibility that there is an advanced civilization that can talk to us every 1,500 light years. So from here to Orion, you know Orion? Orion's belt, the pot. Yep, the pot. Yeah. So tau total, from here to, t- <laughs> from here to there, there should be a civilization that can communicate. Now, if they send their message... Because it's 1,500 light years away, right? Mm. So if they send their message maybe 300 years ago, Mm. or when the Romans were here, does that Mm. mean that the Romans were 
not mm. intelligent or advanced. No, it just means they didn't have the technology. So you have to have it technologically uh, mm. compatible. To receive. So, yeah, civilization to receive. So I hope so. One of my favorite people in this world is Seth Shostak, and he is chief alien researcher. He has this amazing podcast called Big Big um, uh, Big Science Question, Big Question Science, or something like that. Okay. It's a shame on me; I don't even remember. <laughs> I am uh, Seth for chief Seth, alien researcher. Seth Shostak, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a great title. Um, and he, he's, he's. Just phenomenal, and he's been doing aliens his entire life, and he reckons that he hopes that we're mm. going to find someone soon mm. to talk to. Yeah, because when we look in our galaxy, mm-hmm. our galaxy is big, mm. and it's about 150,000 light years from one side to the other. So light takes 150,000 years to go from one side to the other side. To the center of our galaxy is about 27,000 light years. Okay. But what we've done... It's called the radiosphere. So we created a sphere that has a radius of 100 light years. So that's how tiny we are. Mm. This is our signature in space. Yeah. It's mm. really tiny. So that's, that's as far as our signals went into space. Gotcha. Oh, wow. You know, it's not too far. No. It's actually so it might be stuff out tiny. there in, the, in other words, just passing yeah. us by mm. yeah. cosmically, I mean, and just going, there's nothing over there because yeah. we're not within 100 Because we didn't years. discover warp engines and... You know, so then they just pass by. Are we working could. on some at the moment, though? <laughs> they know. seem to be. That's a Saturday thing, working on a rocket lab. Yeah. <laughs> and there is a methane satellite that is going up in the sky with the um, New Zealand Space Agency, which is really, really exciting as well. A methane. So, yeah. That measures methane. Okay. That's yeah. just trippy. I, I thought we would get Science. on the aliens. Yeah. Well, well let's go well, back dogs. to aliens. I hope so. But I do hope so. I mm. think it's a very profound question, and it, mm. it's yes. one that it's... Putting things in perspective so much, because if we can't find anybody around us, then not, that's why I always say, don't we have a responsibility to make sure that we're taking care of this planet mm-hmm. and that we survive? Mm-hmm. And, that, you know, and, and then you, you said something really interesting. You, you said something about um, you, non-permanence, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, or impermanence. Impermanence, right, yeah. impermanence. But from my point of view, I think because I'm coded, I know, because I'm a woman, I'm mm-hmm. a mother, mm-hmm. I'm coded to make sure that everybody's all right, right? And mm-hmm. I'm taking care of everybody, yeah. not, not just me, probably. And I think we all like that, right? We want to have children and see that they're growing up and, you know. We all, all want to have that betterment if you're yeah. kind of educated yeah. and have a, yeah. a, a level of empathy with the, not just other people but the world and have a level of intellect as well to know that you're not that precious compared to a lot of other mm. people and why should you get things over the, and then on top of that the equity scale mm-hmm. of then, the haves and haves nots and yeah. you think this is a highly complicated thing that I found myself in the middle of <laughs> <laughs> and it's just a little of me mm-hmm. what can I do and you're thinking well you've got a lot of agency actually you can help a lot with just these micro interactions yeah. and the ripples that you send out in the world and you realise again intellectually the more of them you send out the more reverberations can become mm. bigger, bigger, bigger. Mm. So I think there is power in the individual, but it's got to be uh, amplified through the collective. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Y- yes. Yeah. But here I am to tell you that yeah. y- you are important. Yes, it's not that I don't feel important. No, no, Your permanence I, I, was actually to drive what yeah. you were driving home earlier on when you were going, it's amazing 
when you look out to the world, how precious we become mm. by going how many other galaxies there are. Mm. And mm. so you're seeing yourself as, you know, quite fantastic mm. through the lens of if you kind of just take a little bit of a sidestep going, well, you're not that special if you look at the amount of planets out there. Mm. And I understand now they're finding so many more habitable planets. 4,700 mapped. 4,700. Yeah, that, quite that a few were now. mapped by right. the satellite. Do you have two or three favourites that you know you'd like to get? Kepler 232 <laughs> is your favourite? <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that one. <laughs> but it is mad that they're finding more and more of mm. those. But they are there. We just yeah, find them because we, we have better reaching. telescopes. Yes. That's the only reason why we find more. Yeah, it's mm. not we're discovering them in a sense. They no. were all, already there. Yeah. We're just seeing them. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, we. So, so I think this, my work gets so much into the work that you do. Mm. And one of the mm. things I studied was international security because That's I saw. So so, oh my gosh. Because I so wanted to understand why people go to war. Yes. Mm. He said, why do we go to war? We have this set up here. We're the only life that we know about. Mm-hmm. Okay, we didn't know about this. But then Carl Sagan turned the Voyager mm-hmm. around on Valentine's Day. Oh. You know, I was like, what a beautiful love mm-hmm. declaration to humankind. Mm-hmm. Sure. Took a picture of the pale blue dot. And it's like, there, dudes, you're a dot. Yeah. <laughs> so, Suspended in a life beam. <laughs> Beautiful, yeah, yeah you know. <laughs> Very Beautiful. good. Very yeah. good. Yeah, it's not the most amazing picture. I've got three pictures that I love. I don't have a favorite planet, but I have three pictures that I love. Mm. One is the pale blue dot. Mm. The other one is the Hubble Ultra Deep Field, where you can only see galaxies. Mm. Yeah. And a picture that is taken on a space that's at arm's length, which should be like this, mm. um, the size of a um, grain of rice. And they pointed the telescope to a place which didn't, was devoid of stars. Mm. And the third picture is the very first picture that was taken from space, from a camera that was mounted on a V2 rocket that was captured from oh. the Germans that was used initially to kill people. Mm. And that's the very first picture of Earth. And the guy who took it, he said, this is how Earth would look to an alien civilization mm. would appear when they would visit Earth. And that's what would be the first thing they would see from space. Because mm. uh, at the time, everybody was convinced that there are aliens everywhere, even mm. on Mars yeah. or Venus. Of course. So these three pictures are my favorite because they just put such a perspective on everything mm. and the world and, and who we are and and. I never felt small or insignificant when when I look at stars, even mm. though like this universe is so huge. Mm. Mm. But I've always felt so connected to everything, yeah. and life is so beautiful and, and such a miracle. So, so I think space for me, and the reason why I studied space, uh, international security and space, is because I'm convinced that when we communicate pe- to people about <laughs> Who we are, we're on this rock. Um, we're really being careful to, you know, we do we invented this thing called planetary defense so that we don't get hit by asteroids. Mm. Dinosaurs didn't have that luxury. Yes. They, they did, mm. right? Like us. Right? So we, we have all these things, but yet we, we are so petty with each other and mm. we don't have equality. We don't have, you know, we just like, we're mean. Mm-hmm. We're, we're so small. <laughs> so the power to get over that, I, I spoke in a couple of other episodes, the power of conversation and, you know, how much kind of 
uh, weight it carries if you can do it right. Yeah, and the repatriation and lots of other things, the the things in Zaire that they try to pull mm. groups together, used to be fighting, it all came down to managing conversation with these groups. Mm. And you see that also it can be a tool for disinformation mm. we touched on earlier as well. So it could be a, a, a blunt tool mm. as well as a finessing kind of fish knife as well. That was the second uh, tool that proved valuable in helping people not go on to commit another offence after they'd left prison. It was relationship. Uh, so firstly, understanding who you are and then understanding who you are relative to others and being able to relate and communicate through that. Yeah. That interpersonal yeah. skills that you need. Exactly. Right. Relationships. So identity Fascinating, and relationships. yeah, because... Mm. Yeah. So I've got a, a question. It's inspired by what you've just taken us through as well, Hari. Mm. Yes. Let's imagine that you are a form of intelligent extraterrestrial life. Super intelligent extraterrestrial cool. life. You've, just, you've managed to speak all of the languages of Earth and you're able to communicate. And you've just popped into our atmosphere, and you're kind of popping down to land on Earth. The first contact humankind has with extraterrestrial life. Lands in Wales. Lands in Wales. Of course it lands in Wales. Um, <laughs> so you land in Wales, and um, like you have this ability to communicate with people around you, mm. and um, people, like society sees you as being this incredibly advanced and sophisticated, and you, know, you, you can withstand anything Earth throws at you. Uh, and then all of a sudden, somehow, in like an Independence Day type scenario, Earth gives you control of Earth. You can, you can kind of make three or four choices that Earth could roll out pretty instantly um, that could change Earth for the better. What would those three or four things be? It might just be one thing. Is this a question for me or for everybody? Everybody. <laughs> but because you spoke first. Right. <laughs> I have sin. <laughs> Good luck. I would make people super smart. Mm. I would make like, I would put knowledge in their brains. Like I would have like a hard drive, you know, like you have, because I think a lot of knowledge comes from experience and a lot of the things we do wrong are because we're inexperienced. We haven't done that before. Mm. We haven't been there. It's like Dune. I love Dune. It's one of my favorite books. Oh, so right? shared experience <gasps> consciousness. Yeah, so you have that conscious. Uh -huh. The neural where, network of the mentants. Um, and yeah, the and the people and mm. the, uh, yeah. the sisters oh, yeah, who the had memories. Papa. Yeah. So I want to come back to that question, but yeah. on a side note, just because you mentioned it, is that your favorite ever space movie? Yeah, I was coming onto this. Day. My favorite we'll ever space out. movie is The Martian. On a side note, mm. so like reasons, I cried, yeah. mm. but I love Dune. I don't think the movie's made any justice to Dune. Not, not the first one, right? But the, not, you've seen the shorts for yeah, the new I one. Yeah, I have. You're not a fan. I, I, it's I'm okay, but I think it has so much more deep depth. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. You're true. I'm it just, feels a bit. I'm so of, obsessed with Dune. Yeah. It's just like. So going back to the question about <laughs> what couple of things you do, you would create. A shared consciousness based on knowledge and understanding. Yes. And that actually comes from what I read and what I want to believe is that actually the biggest power that we have on earth here and we have it right now, mm. it's collective intelligence. Mm. Mm. It's the most amazing thing. So mm. when people get together and put their brains together and they work on problems together and they do citizen science and they get involved and engaged... Mm. So their existence becomes meaningful. That's 
when progress happens. Mm. Okay, that's a good one. Mm. Yeah, I like it. Mm. I'd want to do something around kind of the earth and its um, kind of bio health, mm. I suppose. Mm. Because uh, if I was a superhuman mm. alien person, straight away I'd see, oh, you're wrecking this place. Mm-hmm. Stop. Mm-hmm. And the the way we're going to stop is, mm, and it might be that you just outlaw, you know, the obvious ones would be ice out, cream. Out, outlaw ice cream. Yeah. Never. It's got a bad supply chain. It's just, come it's just so good. <laughs> so good. Maybe, but I was more thinking of you know fuel. Uh, sorry, um, you know, oil and extraction. Mm. Any extractive kind yeah. of stuff on the earth, which then we turn into something else, which mm. then turns into plastics, turns into everything else. Mm. So it's not just you got to follow the source again. Go mm. right back. It's the extraction, mm. and then because you couldn't just say stop without stop doing that. Mm but here's something else mm. to do. And it's the same if you think about oil companies at the moment. Mm. They are brilliant companies from the perspective of how effective they are mm. at what they do. Mm. Extraction, turns it into something else, distributes it, like makes movie. money. Pardon? Like a spy movie, extraction. Extraction, yeah, a bit like that. Exfiltration. <laughs> but they're so good at it. Now, if they just did that, but for green energy, mm or solar, or wind, or mm. tidal, whatever. They did exactly the same thing in terms of their skill base. Mm. We'd be looking at them going, great. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks. You know, so it's not about, it's stopping something at this course. So that would, mm. I would try to reveal something mm. like that, but then offer an alternative. Mm. What would you do? Uh, I've had the advantage of kind of percolating on this and being inspired mm. by both of your, your <laughs> thoughts. So if they've got here, arguably we could get there. So I'd like to go there. Ooh. That'd be pretty nifty, right? Share some of how we do that. But if, if they were super powerful and able to do some of the stuff we've talked about, I think um, something about this idea that my stuff is mine and your stuff is yours, I, I think if, if they could kind of zap that out of our brains, our stuff is ours, so all of a sudden Earth has that kind of shared collective... Remember, I think it's Independence Day 2, where at the end of the movie the there's a world government all of a sudden because mm. they've united against a common foe. That's right, yeah. Um, so I think that unity piece, that'd be really cool if like, we can like Star Trek. work in some way. Maybe like Star Trek. Star Trek yeah. says that yeah. we won't have positions United in the Federation future. Everybody the planets, has, yeah. right, right. And then um, I think defining yourself in opposition to someone else is what they did at in, in Independence Day. And I'm not sure mm. that's that useful for us as a society anymore. Maybe that was sure. useful... Um, you know, 20,000 years ago, but I, I feel like that might be the cause of some of the problems. So you um, define yourself in commonality instead. Exactly. So again, that comes back ah. to what? Identity. Mm. So you're starting to see who you are as a person and then who we are as a collective. Sure. But how do you not lose your identity? Because a lot of conversations are we need to maintain who we like. And I've been thinking about this for a long mm. time. I'm from Romania. Mm. And I think I'm a planetary citizen. Mm. Yeah. So you strip away, first you mean, first you would identify yourself as that yep. rather than Romanian. Yep. But yep. I am a Romanian gotcha. as well. Mm-hmm. And I always be. It's never going to go away from me. Mm. But when people ask me about, you know, what do I want to go to when I grow up? <laughs> I want to be a planetary citizen. And I feel like that. Mm. I, so, okay, I'm going to hijack this conversation good, and I'm just like going to say this. 
I think culture is just a set of instructions that we inherit from our ancestors Mm -hmm. that we're really good in a certain geographical location. So like, um, you know, at at wintertime in Europe, we eat like really fat meats because that's the only thing that gets you through winter. But you you can't eat that through summertime because you die because it's too fat. Mm. So it kills you. So then you have all these dietary requirements that they're now in, in, in... kind of like put into religion and like, no, no, you don't do this because God is going to come and do something Mm -hmm. to you. But actually, it's food safety. So for me, I reckon culture is the set of instructions and and you do it when you're in a certain geographical position. So you don't eat the same food here in summertime that you eat at Christmas. I like, imagine your own Christmas food that is like so fat and like sugary and bread and stuff mm. that you eat here in summertime. It's just, you can't do that. Like my mom used to do a lot of cooking and yeah. so it's Christmas. I'm like, yeah, but it's, I can't eat it. I Summer. cannot yeah. eat it. Summertime. Mm. So when we travel around the world and we're very lucky that our world is very diverse, mm. we have to lose these and people call this culture. And culture is actually something you repeatedly do in plain sight. Mm. You know, do it. Mm. culture in Romanian is the same word for crop. So you just oh, cultivate okay. something. Yeah, cultivate. yeah, yeah, you cultivate. Occult means hidden. It's like yeah. you know, when the moon goes behind, a star goes behind the moon is an occultation. So it's like yeah. it's hiding. It's like the occult powers. It's just the hide, yeah. hidden powers. But that's what I think. And and some of these instructions they might have been really good thousands of years ago. But if we hang on to them now, and this is just my personal opinion, if we hang on to these conversations now and and we do those things without even realizing why our mm. ancestors were doing them, mm. then I don't think we do a good service to the future of humankind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But And we disrespect these cultural, cultural norms because if you do something without understanding why you're doing it... Mm-hmm. Totally. Why are we doing it? I was like... You, I agree. You don't respect the initial, but but then when you understand, you say, okay, I was doing this because if I didn't eat this way in wintertime, I would have died mm. if I lived 2,000 years ago. So in Romania, what is the kind of, uh, what is the heritage of the culture there? Where did that come from? From the Dacians and the Thracians. Right. So like ancient people of Europe, mm. very old. Gotcha who came yeah. from, you know, like everybody else from the Caucasus. Mm. Gotcha. And I'm just thinking in terms of Wales and its heritage, sim- similar in terms of, like, um, paganistic, paganistic, Germanic yeah, that's us. kind of yeah. thing. And yeah. then if I think about the Celtic yep. history then, yep. folklore, yep. mythologies, yep. then learnings yep. and teachings and lessons mm. that came out of that, again, with the stars and everything else and certain things you should do and shouldn't do, mm. uh, things you should praise and shouldn't praise, all yeah. that stuff. I, I see all this as just, and, and again, here in New Zealand as mm. well, you look around at the indigenous and the Maoridom kind of teachings and stuff. You look at it and you can both kind of revel and delight in it as mm. uh, kind of some, because there's some deep truths to a lot of it. Mm. It's like, of course we should be doing that. Yeah. Right. But then you also see it through the lens I'm speaking again as an individual, um, of going, yeah, that was their attempt of figuring out what's going on. Mm. When they look out, they're going, oh, like the stars, for example, and they made up stories about it, and then maybe the stories influence what happens down here. I'm going, not really. <laughs> like horoscopes and things like that. It's and ball thinking. of stars. 
Yeah, it's just a ball of dust up there, really. You know? <laughs> it doesn't really have a huge amount of influence here. It's just what you decide to do, actually. But mm. I find that fascinating is when we can now, we're at the point now probably not to dismiss all that's gone before, mm. but to understand why it was there in the first place. And then take the best bits and go, no, this is something that we need to keep because it has some deep value and wisdom for us to move forward with, mm. you know, like treating the earth as a, a proper entity and a, and a, and a, a soul that we recognise, you know, like mm. the Māori when they gifted personhood to a, a river or mm. a mountain. Mm. And now you can't do anything wrong to that because it's like doing something wrong to a person. Mm. That makes sense, mm. yeah. So now we're not hurting the land mm. like you mm. would hurt a person. Mm. That's kind of cool, mm. but that's a very old idea. Mm. And I said, actually, you know, I can look back and think about it as a very paganistic Celtic mm-hmm. when we used to think the mm-hmm. trees and the yep. thing had their own souls and we got to treat mm-hmm. them as people. Mm-hmm. You know? They do have their own souls. Right. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it's fascinating. It's kind of spun round. I'm, I'm aware of time as well, people. So I don't mm-hmm. want to like end it, but I want to kind of end mm-hmm. it in terms of asking you about... Um, well, how do you want to end this? In terms of, we, I usually throw out a juicy question, but I'm kind of, these are juicy questions we've been having mm-hmm. and maybe one of you got one that's lingering still. Because <laughs> you've been asking so good, you, both of you. It's like be sitting back mm-hmm. going, cool. Well, there's Saturn and Jupiter in the sky. Yes. Mm. And they're there a lot of times. And I think we should invite people to just go and look up through a telescope mm-hmm. and just judge for themselves. So you're inviting people to go out and find Saturn and Jupiter yep. at the moment because yes. we can see it. Yes. Mm. Like naked eye stuff it. or Naked eye stuff and even Mars. Mm. Mars is going to be like... Mars is... It, okay, Mars is absolutely gorgeous. It's red and it's on the horizon mm. late evening and it looks like a beautiful star or like a UFO or like an airplane but it is Mars. It's like really, really ruby red... And it's not twinkling, is it? That's twinkling all you know. thing. Because it, when it's near the horizon, it, it is twinkling. It is better, okay. But, but yeah, just just go outside and have a think about how we're all connected to each other and That's ponder a lovely about ask. That. And maybe what the view would be like from Mars looking back at us. Yeah. Twinkling off in the distance in the horizon. Pale blue dot. Mm. There we go. What's your hopes in terms of inviting people to think about something different? I felt like it was an invitation for mm. people who were listening mm. to think differently or do it differently. What would you kind of... I don't of know. I think the thing that um, has come up for me a few times in this conversation is identity and then mm. culture for the last part. Um, and I think the more each of us can understand who we are, how we identify, how we identify to ourselves, how we identify when we're in different contexts to other people mm. in those contexts, and maybe why we identify in those ways. So what are the cultural instructions in those contexts that cause us to want to introduce ourselves that way or be that person in those contexts? So there's lots of different angles to go away and reflect on when you think about identity Mm. and how your identity relates to others. I kind of feel like um, the more we we kind of do that self-reflection work... um, Which you've done in the last couple of years, yeah? Yeah, I think I've had the privilege of having people around me and sort of contexts around me that have kind of caused me to do that and given Mm. me the opportunity to do that yeah Mm. just just to linger on that because you talked about being Romanian and that and I talked a little bit about being Welsh, what do you think it is about being Kiwi that's 
for you that's rich and mm. is different than what you've heard from us? Or is it the same? That's the beauty for them. I think the answer is yes to that question. But if I think about it, I'm, I kind of um, I know that sort of four to five generations um, of my tipuna, my ancestors, um, have lived here in Aotearoa. Mm. But before that, they, they weren't here in Aotearoa. They were somewhere else. Um, I know that because I did one of those saliva tests, not for the COVID, but for the, okay. the you know DNA ancestry. Uh-huh. I have no whakapapa, no Māori ancestry in my background, mm. which um, I, actually was quite... It shook me uh, quite a lot to realise that all of my ancestors had just been white people who had been intermingling with each other. Sure. That's quite profound if you zoom it out into the scale of human history. Yeah, I um, get But that, that kind of five generations here in New Zealand means I have a disconnect from Celtic or from my Welsh roots. I've never been to that part of the world. Mm. So I've never felt that kind of deep spiritual connection that you have to a place that your ancestors, generation after generation, have lived and died on. Mm. I've got a much narrower window here, yet I'm, I've been here for long enough that I really strongly identify mm. as a New Zealander. You know, I'll, I'll go for New Zealand over England in any kind of sporting format. Quite right. No doubt, right? Um, so that kind of, um, again, the, the temporalness mm. or um, uh, what was your word again? Permanence. There we go, right? Yeah, that's, pro- that's probably something that sits with me when I've been reflecting on who I am and what my identity is and how I relate to others. Mm. Wow. It's fascinating. Mm. Thank you, people. Well, hang on, hang on. What? Um, what? Yeah. We, we gave some, oh, some I things. Don't know, we cut, right? <laughs> <laughs> what, what's your big thing you're going to leave with? Uh, well, with us. So, one of my favourite quotes on the planet mm. is from the... Um, from a poet called Reina Maria Rilke, mm. who wrote yeah, letters to a young poet and lots of other things, and I love him to bits. He's such a moody bastard. <laughs> Bless him. If I ever met him, I probably wouldn't be pals with him, but like, dude, what's going on? Do you want a hug? Um, however, he, said when he, he says arresting things and his sonnets and his, and his um, elegies is just amazing. But one of his things that he said about the purpose of life, and the purpose of life... I, st- I, I kind of hold true to my heart, is to be defeated by greater and greater things. Mm. And I just probably would like to leave that with people. It's mm. like, from a guy who is like a bit of a knob, uh, a bit very mon- melancholic, a bit struggling, um, but he did grasp at something there that was very true, mm. the idea that we should always reach beyond our grasp and try to be defeated by greater and greater things. Mm. That's what we're here to do. And scene. <laughs> <laughs> Man, you got me deep. <laughs> that was good. That was good. Is that all right? Yeah. Are we all good? Yes. Did we cover most things? Everything. And then some? Yeah. Wow, love the tangent. Everything about everything. <laughs> Loving the tangent. <laughs> I we feel like there was another three to four hours yeah, of, uh, we, of we could have, definitely. So when do we start this? <laughs> <laughs> and are we good to go, John? Or did you get any of that? No, you didn't have the <laughs> tape. Start again. Didn't have the tape in? <laughs> Anybody want some chocolate before Please. you leave? This is crude chocolate. 
Thank you for listening to Creative Welly episode six. My name is DK. Thank you again for lending us your ears, your time, and your brain. This again was brought to you in association with John O. Tucker over at Empire Films, the producer of the video podcast, and also hosted by X Equals. And thanks to Alex Matthews for his time. Please subscribe to creativewelly.com. Lots of options to subscribe, and we'll see you at the next episode.